Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company interview podcast. Before we get going, I thought you might like to know that after almost four years, author events are back at Shakespeare and Company and in a reimagined event space on our first floor. We have such an exciting lineup in place for you in the coming months. There's Holly McNish and Michael Peterson in early February. Then in March, there's Danny Kane, author of How to Protect Bookstores and Why, Rachel Kushner giving us an exclusive preview of her wild new novel, Creation Lake, and Perlitzer Prize winner Viet Tan Nguyen discussing his memoir, A Man of Two Faces. Beyond that, into the spring, we have a blockbusting book-to-screen event with Otessa Moshfeg and Luke Goebel, as well as conversations with Sheila Hetty, Samantha Schweblin, Hari Kanzru and Rachel Kusk. As always, readings are free, unticketed and open to everyone, so do arrive early to secure your seat. Also make sure you keep an eye on our website, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you can sign up to our newsletter to be the first to hear about our upcoming events. And if you can't be at the bookshop in person, remember that you can listen in to past events here on the Shakespeare and Company interview podcast. We're so happy to be bringing writers and readers together again and look forward to seeing you at the bookshop soon. Now, sit back and enjoy the interview, whichever one you're listening to. In the essay, Close, Joanne Beard writes, We have to find new and surprising ways to convey our insights. That means we have to have insights, which means we have to think. And that means we have to work to create art out of life, to bring something new to each sentence, a surprise for the reader. Beard is describing the challenge facing writers, but also happens to be listing many of the qualities which, as a reader, I have discovered in her essays. For a Joanne Beard essay is surprising, insightful, thoughtful, contains something new in each and every sentence. A Joanne Beard essay creates art out of life. Recently published in the UK as The Collected Works of Joanne Beard, the two books, 1999's The Boys of My Youth and 2021's Festival Days, combine the stylistic flair and pace of fiction with the ineffable weight of the factual, creating in the reader a rare and profound sense of empathy mediated through the imaginative act. Joanne Beard is quite unlike any other writer I've read, and I'm delighted to say she joins me on the podcast today. Joanne, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you. Um, I, I always like interviewing writers whose work I have difficulty pinning down, or work I have difficulty um, describing. Um, and I gave a bit of a go at it in the the introduction there, um, which I think if read, if listeners haven't read your work, when they pick it up, I can imagine they might think they're reading a collection of short stories uh, to begin with. And then as the as as they make their way into into each piece, suddenly I think the the essayistic nature of them takes over. But to my mind, they're neither quite one thing or the other. Do you have a way that you talk about your work when people ask you what it is you write? Well, I have a very hard time with that question, the same way you're having a hard time with that question. That's a relief to know. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and in fact, in the book, the in the book Festival Days, which is collected in the collected works, um, there are some, a couple of long short stories that began in my mind as essays, but then sort of morphed through the writing of them into something that I couldn't have predicted. Mm. And it goes back kind of to what you said right at the beginning, which is that, um, that there are surprises embedded into uh, 
certain essays and stories that you might not have predicted when you start reading them. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is the same process that I experience as a writer, where I begin with an idea or a fragment of an idea or an image, and I just embark. Mm -hmm. And I wait to see where that takes me. And always, always, 100% of the time, where it takes me is someplace I couldn't have predicted and which, you know, is surprising in terms of um, maybe what I discover in the writing, which is probably different than what a reader would discover in the reading of it. Mm -hmm. But what matters the most, I think, is that sense of, of surprise, of mm -hmm. not knowing where you're going to go when you embark on the journey. Do you have a feeling when the way we categorize um, writing, either as fiction or nonfiction stories or essays, is in some way restrictive? Do you find it, do you find it unhelpful? Would it be more interesting for you if we just talked about writing or prose? Well, it's funny for me, there's a division between who I am as a reader and who I am as a writer. Mm -hmm. As a writer, I'm not interested in those divisions at all. I feel that it's my job to just write the story. And if the story moves into a realm that feels more fiction than nonfiction, then I call it fiction. And if it stays in the realm that I think is more nonfiction, then that's what I call it. But I will confess that when I'm reading, I do want to know. Mm -hmm. I do want a sense before I begin whether this is something that really happened or not. It's funny, isn't it? There is a sort of um, almost like a, a pre-contract um, that the reader feels they enter into. And I, I find this at the bookstore, that uh, it's very important for readers to know uh, if something actually happened, um, whatever whatever that means. I agree with you. And even this morning, sitting at my breakfast table reading the New York Times, there was a front page story that I started reading in the Times, which is supposed to be as factual as we can get it. And we know everything is subjective, but as factual as we can get it. And halfway through this, you know, news, supposed news piece, I just said to my husband, no, this is this is not newspaper reporting. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, this is somewhere between fiction and nonfiction. And it's scary when you see that in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I have a lot of sympathy for writers because, you know, we're trying to write the best story we can. But if you're, if you're writing journalism, you really have to be as faithful as you can mm -hmm. to what we call the factual truth. At a moment, you write that your your first love was poetry, um, and then you you go on to say your second love was fiction, and your third and lasting love was the essay. But do you think that first love of poetry is what informs that um, fragment approach you were talking about a moment ago? That you begin with an image, and the uh, the the story or the essay builds from there. I think that that's exactly true. That that's where that began. And that that feeling of trying to write poetry, um, when I just sort of randomly took a poetry class, and suddenly I thought, oh my God, I love this. I love just sitting in a chair with a pen, mm -hmm. thinking of pictures in my head, 
and trying to apply language to them that would illustrate them in a way like a painting on a page. Mm-hmm. And I turned out not to be very good at poetry, <laughs> really not very good at poetry, but but that feeling of loving to apply language to image in the way that you apply paint to an image, um, it, it's my favorite thing in the world. And just to set that aside, um, another thing you write, uh, I think in the in, in the same piece, is you, you say that a, you say that a good essay, uh, and, and indeed for that matter, a good short story, a good memoir, novel, is about ideas. Um, that's how it elevates itself beyond and above its nominal subject. Now, having read your work, I could see how these two um, concepts sit together, the kind of the poetic, but also being ideas-based. But is, in a sense, even though the good essay to your mind is about ideas, is it the, the ideas that sort of rise up through the writing rather than through an idea that you have before you sit down to write? Yes, and that's a perceptive reading of my work because I don't begin with an idea, I begin with an image. But as a teacher of nonfiction, and as somebody who was formerly a student of nonfiction, who primarily writes kind of memoir-based pieces, primarily, I recognize that you have to transform your own experience. Sometimes it's suffering, sometimes you have to transform your own suffering in order for the reader to grasp it and connect it to their own life and their own experience. Think that the way you do that best is through image, or maybe that's the way that I connect with the idea, is through image and language. Werner Hayflick spent the evening at his catering job, making white wine spritzers and mixing vodka with tab in a spacious apartment overlooking Central Park. There were orchids, thick rugs, a dog with long blonde hair. He walked home late from the subway afterward along the gated and padlocked streets of the Upper East Side. The trees on his block were scrawny and impervious, like invalid ants. Once he had seen a parakeet in one of those trees, staring down at him, shifting from foot to foot. The bird had sharpened both sides of its beak on the branch and then made a veering, panicky flight to a windowsill far above. Most of Warner's metaphorical moments were painterly. The juxtaposing of the wild bird in the tame tree, the shimmer of periwinkle, the splurt of titanium white that fell from it onto the pavement. He loved New York for its simple surprises, although in truth, Oregon and Iowa and Arizona and everywhere else had simple surprises as well. Cantaloupe-colored sunrises, banded cows, dairy queens, all kinds of things that didn't include black plastic mountains of trash and the smell of dog urine. But on that night, it wasn't like that. It was cold and fresh on the dark streets. He rounded the corner and his building came into view, a turn-of-the-century tenement where, right about then, just before midnight, December 19th, 
1991, another kind of New York surprise was taking shape. Deep inside the walls, three floors below Werner's apartment, a sprig of cloth-wrapped wire sizzled and then opened like a blossom. You um you say that the primarily you're a writer of sort of memoir based pieces, but there are notably certain um certain works I think of Sherry, which I will definitely come on to talk about, and uh, Werner or Werner, um, where you very much think yourself into the mind of somebody else. Um, when you are writing pieces like that, how much responsibility do you feel? Both to the, I suppose, to the the facts as they as they pertain to uh, to to each story, but also to the person that you are writing about. Well, in those two instances, I felt a lot of obligation to the people I was writing about to adhere very uh, close to the notes that I had taken during the research part of the uh, writing of the piece. And um, with, you know, great awareness that in the case of Werner, he would be reading the piece and approving it or Mm. not approving it for publication, potential publication. And in the case of Sherry Tremble, um, that her family, that that her daughter Sarah and her friends would be looking at it and thinking, is this who we recognize as Sherry at the end of her life. And for some reason, you know, well, not for some reason, for a good reason, I really wanted to please those people. First of all, I wanted access to those stories, and I wanted to do justice to those stories, but I also wanted them to approve me putting those stories out in the world. And if they hadn't, I wouldn't. Hmm. And is that maybe, I mean, I, we talked earlier about, you know, sort of the lines between different genres or different types of writing not being helpful, but could that be, at least in these cases, what tips us into the realm of essay? Is that sense of responsibility, of not feeling perhaps the um, the fiction writer's omnipotence <laughs> to to do what they want in the service of a good story? Yeah, maybe I hadn't thought of it that way before, but yes, I think you're right. Yeah. Mm. Um, before we look at some of the the specific themes, some of the specific um, pieces, I'm just interested in this um, concept of the collected works. Um, so, which is essentially the two collections, so Festival Days uh, from 2021 and The Boys of My Youth from 1999. Um, I was just intrigued, firstly, about the the ordering of them because it's um, anti-chronological. So the newer collection in the collected works is put first. Um, could you talk a little bit about what informed that decision and also just about whether collecting the works together, and I imagine going through them and proofreading and, and everything like that, did that give you a sort of a different sense of perhaps what your themes are or how you write or what you're doing than seeing them in two separate collections? First of all, I have to say, I did not make the decision mm-hmm. to <laughs> to begin with one book or the other book. And I tend to think in terms of chronological order, mm-hmm. but I do believe that that the publishers really did consider this issue and um, and they decided that the more recent work would 
be a better way to begin the book. And I actually don't know the rationale for that, but I can tell you that at that point in the process, I trusted them completely Mm -hmm. because, um, first of all, they came to me and wanted to, to publish not only my collected works, which was stunning for me, but they also wanted to pull out this long essay called Sherry and make it its own book, which um, I felt so incredibly touched by and moved by. So Sherry's story had haunted me for so long that it was really thrilling for me to see her get this profound appreciation, this beautiful little book that was published alongside the collected works. And both of them had these incredibly just delicate and powerful covers. So I guess what I'm saying is these two books published together and published so beautifully, they weren't just printed, they were published. They were, Mm. the idea of putting these out in the world was really thought through by my British publishers. And also, I guess, you know, that they were coming out in England, in the UK, meant everything to me. (laughs) Well, let's stay with um, Sherry for a little bit, because um, it is one of the the longer pieces in in the books. And I think also it, it uh, encapsulates so many different elements of your work and so many different uh, themes which you seem to to be circling in your career that I think it could give us quite a, a nice jumping off point. Um, I'd like to return to that idea of, you said the story had haunted you for so long. Um, could you talk a little bit about how you came across that story, how uh, Sherry came into your life and how you, and, and, and the moment you realised that you were going to then I had heard the story of Sherry from a friend of mine who was close friends with one of Sherry's daughters. And in the way that when you have a good friend that you talk to on the phone sometimes, far across the country, I used to sometimes say to my friend, and how is your friend, Sarah? And she would tell me, you know, Sarah's mother is very sick. And so I sort of kept up with that story from a distance. And then one day when I talked to my friend, she said, Sarah's mother died finally. And I asked about it, just how did it happen? And is Sarah okay? And she said, well, they took her to Michigan for Jack Kevorkian to help her die. Mm -hmm. And I was flabbergasted at the idea that this woman who I knew from a distance had taken her mother and been with her mother right up until the moment when they were ushered out of the house. And I just immediately connected it with the death of my own mother, Mm -hmm. which happened in a hospice unit at a hospital, but still was maybe, you know, the pivotal event in my younger life. And I just wanted, I wanted to go inside that story and see what it felt like to be Sarah with her mother. And so I contacted her from afar through my friend and asked her if I could research and write the story of her mother. And, um, you know, she was not certain for a long time, but then she finally said, yeah, okay, you can do that. And so I did. 
And I really did truly come to love Sherry through the writing of it. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of things I want to pick up there. First of all, I, I know we have a listeners of many different ages to this podcast. And I think for um, certainly for me, I'm in my early 40s. The name Kevorkian immediately has uh, resonance and meaning and um, was very, um, and, I, and the moment I came across it in the story uh, was almost a, it, it sort of, it, it, it shook me, shook me out of myself in a way. It was a very, a very odd moment. Um, but for, uh, for our listeners who may be a little bit younger and haven't come across uh, the, the figure of Dr. Kevorkian, could you just tell us a little bit about who he was and why, this story, uh, beyond the, your personal connections to it, uh, appealed to you? He was a doctor who uh, worked in Michigan. He was from Michigan, and he's deceased now. And he believed in assisting people who were sick and dying and wanted to depart the planet before they died naturally. Mm-hmm. That's the only way I know how to describe it. Maybe you can do that better than me, Adam. But um, he was considered by some to be a savior of the sick and dying because he prevented them from a certain measure of inevitable suffering. But he was thought by a lot of people to be, um, you know, he was called Dr. Death. Mm-hmm. So um, the the crucial thing about Kevorkian is that he was a real doctor mm-hmm. and he knew how to end life and end suffering um, in a way that was fast and painless. And many people reached out to him for his help mm-hmm. and he did it under the table, so to speak. So he did it out of, you know, his own house in Michigan frequently meeting his patients in a roadside motel where he would bring a, um, a contraption, a suicide machine mm-hmm. that would deliver the, um, the fatal chemicals through an IV system. It's fascinating, isn't it? Just as an aside, it feels, um, when, when I think back to when, you know, Dr. Kevorkian was in the was in the news, was in the, the zeitgeist almost to a, an extent. That feels like such a long time ago, and society feels like it's changed so much. And yet, the discussion around assisted dying doesn't feel like it's, or it feels like it's only crept forward since then. Um, and so, re- reading reading uh, about Sherry and uh, the ending of her life feels despite the fact it's sort of in one sense because Kevorkian is there, places it in a, a certain historical time period. In another sense, it feels so utterly, but maybe eternally contemporary. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that probably he would not have agreed to help her, except that she, you know, because she was had terminal cancer. She wasn't going to live that long. But she was unable to tolerate pain medication. And so her suffering was grievous. And he really uh, listened to her in a way that perhaps the other doctors didn't. Mm-hmm. And he, he, you know, listened to her plead her case. He reached out to her 
after he got her letter and he said, I will help you because nobody else will. Hmm. And he turned out to be, um, I think, you know, more sympathetic and kinder to her than any of the other doctors were. Mm-hmm. At a moment um, in, a, in, in a different story, and uh, in fact, in this case, not about a person, but about a dog, um, you write that we're, we're in this together, the dying game. And when I, when I, when I read that phrase, my, my mind almost snagged on it because reading sort of all of your work together, it did seem to me that obviously in Sherry, but also in um, Werner and in story, um, essays like uh, The Tomb of Wrestling, there's this kind of, there seems to be in your work a a fascination with, let's say, the proximity to death or the way one might engage with uh, the potential or the possibility of death. Does that sound like a reflection that you might might recognize? It does. And, and I have to tell you, I didn't recognize that at all mm-hmm. until... I actually looked at the collected works <laughs> and I went, oh my God, people are right. Everybody who's been saying, you know, that that I circle that issue all the time. But in fact, I think that um, ever since I was a little girl, I've been aware, like, you know, maybe since I was four or five years old, I've been aware that death is an enormous part of life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm... I spend a lot of time with and thinking about animals and animals don't live as long as we do, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've experienced anyway, a lot of my experiences with death have been with holding the paws of animals who have died before I was ready for them to go. Um, so, yeah, I have to say there does seem to be a bit of an obsession with death, uh-huh. but come on, it's part of life. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> one, of the, one of the biggest parts of life, yeah. we, might, <laughs> we yeah. might say. Um, it's, it's interesting you mentioned animals as well, because um, if I, <laughs> I would say death and dogs were your two uh, <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> principal obsessions based on, uh, based on the reading of the collected works. But, but I found that, I mean, I've never, um, I've never lived with a dog myself. I've, I've lived with cats um, and shared my life with them and been through, um, as you just talk about the sort of the, the passing of animals and that, and that experience. But I did find your writing on dogs, particularly quite unlike any, um, any other dogs I've come across in literature in as much as it seemed the dogs didn't stand for anything. They weren't symbolic of anything. They were, but neither were they sort of anthropomorphized or given kind of characters or sort of a knowledge beyond, uh, you know, what our relationship with them allows. They just felt like a very kind of honest, very empathetic, very sympathetic portrayal of, um, of dogs in a way that I, I I can't think of, um, of any other writer who, who writes about them so well, in fact. Thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. And I have a dog right here who's listening to you. And, and <laughs> I'm sure she feels good about it, too. She's a good girl. She's a good girl. <laughs> um, but I just, I do have to take this opportunity to say I also love cats. Mm-hmm. I don't have a cat because I'm allergic to cats, but I've had a lot of cats in my day. Mm-hmm. Um 
who just simply needed a home. So there you go, you know. Even if you're allergic to them, if they need a home, then sometimes they come to live with you. Um, and I do think that sometimes I anthropomorphize animals, but I don't care about that. Mm -hmm. I don't care about that. It's better for them if we do, if we mm -hmm. imagine that they feel the feelings we have and that if the things that make us suffer make them suffer, then if we think about them in an anthropomorphized way, maybe we're kinder to them. Mm. I think it certainly works in so better in that way than in the other way. Obviously, I'm I'm sitting uh, here in Paris. There, where uh, Descartes is uh, still held up <laughs> I, as the sort of the the founding of philosophy. And of course, his 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 idea was that animals were sort of mere automata who uh, had no feelings and no um, sense of sort of, uh, of or no commonality with the uh, with humans. And yet, I think. It's quite a mad thing because anybody who has spent any time with a dog or a cat or any other animal knows how ridiculous that is. In fact, who knows that there are sort of there are relationships to be had and an understanding to be had between human and animals, and to not to deny it seems I don't know dishonest in some way. It's true, and there was a time, you know, for for centuries when people felt the same way about children. They mm -hmm. felt that children didn't have the same ability to feel as adults did, and children were treated very badly. So we are evolving, you know, we are figuring these things out. And someday people are gonna look back at the way we have treated animals in our factory farms and in other ways, um, our beasts of burden, and they're going to be appalled. Mm -hmm. Another um, another element of your work, again, one of my sort of when I was listing uh, for my notes the kind of the what I consider recurring themes or things that you you touched on or wrote about in ways that um, that I found quite striking was, and I put this under quite the broad bracket, the idea of family. Um, and it seemed to me that uh, you write about family in a way that is again, quite uh, particular and quite unusual. And it's sort of, it's, I, I was trying to ask myself if if it was in some way also connected to class, um, because I find found something I really recognized in, uh, in the way you write about families, which is sort of to neither kind of idealize them nor catastrophize them, right. I guess the word would be, but to, but to sort of present these kind of complex, slightly broken, but also um, fundamentally important units um, that we can kind of, I suppose we can never, we can never escape from. We can never escape. I have to say again, that you are a really perceptive reader because I wrote a novel in between the two books that are in the collected works, and it was called In Zanesville, and it was mm -hmm. about my hometown. It was about my close friendship with, you know, somebody who's who's still all these many 50-plus years later my best friend. Mm -hmm. And that book turned into a novel basically because I forced it to. <laughs> but it's it's every bit a memoir also. And by the time I got done with it, I realized that this novel about my childhood was completely about class. Mm -hmm. And it was about class struggle. And it was about what it means to sort of jump class, to leave the people 
who who raised you and taught you and loved you and to move into another sort of um, realm. Mm -hmm. And then you never quite belong. You don't belong in the realm that you moved into because you feel deep loyalty to your roots. And you don't belong in the place you came from because you deliberately left it. Mm -hmm. And so... um, it's interesting to me that you can sort of see that and feel it in the essays that were, I guess, really in the boys of my youth, mm-hmm. part of the collected works. Yes. So thank you so. for that perception. Well, I think it's something I identify with. I think mm-hmm. it's probably the uh, one of the reasons that I, I, I particularly um, sort of focused in on it. Um, and indeed, in that perception of family and is... Sort of, I said in the broadest sense, it's that idea of friendship as well, and it does seem, um, I think you you know you alluded to it there that sort of a few defining friendships do seem to provide, in a weird kind of way, almost sort of a, particularly to the boys of my youth, a kind of narrative thread in a way, the sort of the thing that keeps you, um, I don't want to say on the straight and narrow, but sort of certainly keeps you sort of um, uh, in touch with, uh, I guess, w- with where you come from, but also with yourself. Yeah, I think so. And and I have a couple of very sturdy relationships that began when I was, you know, in adolescence. Mm-hmm. And my friend Elizabeth, who appears, you know, in the boys of my youth and um and is is essentially the character Felicia in my novel in mm-hmm. Zanesville. Um, she's a constant. And she and I haven't lived in the same town since we were 17 years old. And we don't have that much in common anymore except our past. And believe me, our past is enough to bind us like sisters. Mm -hmm. And um, that's like she is one of the most important relationships I've ever had in my life and continues to be. I I can't remember who I heard say it, but it's something that's really stuck with me for quite a few years is the idea that you can't make a new old friend. Um, and I think there's definitely something I, I, I felt that resonating through your work. It's like however much you grow apart or however much you change or how much your centers of interest are, are no longer the same. They connect you to a part of yourself, which whoever you meet from now on or whoever you've met in the last decade or two is never going to be able to occupy that place. That's exactly right. Mm. Never. So the idea of, you know, growing older and potentially losing some of these relationships mm. is um, daunting. See, see how my mind immediately goes back to the <laughs> idea of, oh, my God, we're not going to be here. <laughs> They're not going to be here. I'm not going to be here. Sorry. <laughs> I'd like to ask you about a, um, I can't find the exact quote in my notes, so I'm afraid I'm going to have to paraphrase you, but... Well, first of all, a little bit of housekeeping. Are you happy with me to talk about you in relationship to the narrative voice? Yes. In, okay. yes. Um, in that case, in which you um, talk about getting kind of tired or bored or frustrated with reading and realize that that's when you kind of have the understanding that what you want to do is right. Um, and I'm just curious to know, is that sort of uh, something in a sense which has persisted like people will often say i think in a 
quite a reductive way. It's a sort of like, well, you know, you you have to you have to be constantly reading to be able to write at all. And I was just kind of curious whether, in fact, that might not be true for you. Whether you perhaps as a writer need a certain distance from reading to uh, to, to I don't know to find the the, the headspace to to work. I think there is some truth to that. And way back when that was happening to me, when I was figuring out that I wanted to become a writer, um, I really, truly did leave books behind for a while, and I was bereft. I couldn't bear it. Books had been there for my whole life to keep me, number one, from being bored, and number two, they they provided like intellectual stimulation for me that I was not getting anywhere else. I was working as a secretary. I was, you know, a party girl, bowling alley girl (laughs) who would, you know, work all day at a typewriter and then go out and sit in a bar at night. And without books, which I consumed at an incredible rate, I would have had no intellectual life at all. I wouldn't have had anything to tell me that there was more in the world than what I was experiencing. And then when the time came that I just didn't really, I felt like writing them, not reading them. And um, and it took a number of years to get back to being a consumer of books. You mentioned earlier that you're also a teacher of writing. And indeed, in the um, in the collection, we have uh, a couple of pieces where you uh, reflect on the practice of teaching and also uh, the uh, the process of writing a uh, a talk that you're uh, that you're going to um, that you're going to give. Uh, I've done a little bit of creative writing teaching myself in the past and, and stopped because I didn't think I was particularly suited for it. And every so often I'll come across somebody writing about it that convinces me that I was correct. <laughs> um, and so there's, I think of um, George Saunders's book, um, A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. Yes. Um, and also your work here. And that you seem, um, I could only think that your students must be incredibly lucky to to have you as a teacher because you seem to um, not only... To, to care about them and to care about their sort of uh, development as writers and development as people. But also you don't seem to have been, let's say, captured by some of the terminology of what I what I think of as like the creative writing industrial complex. Would you talk for a little bit about what it means to you to, to teach and how that feeds back into your writing, if at all? I think, of course, it does feed back into my writing, just like everything does. I can't quite tell you how, because Mm -hmm. a lot of times what it does is it interferes with my writing. Mm. Because teaching, as you know from having done it, is a creative endeavor. Mm -hmm. And so I pour a lot of my creative energy into their work and into trying to present my ideas about how to write. Mm. Um, But that said, um, I actually love teaching and I feel like I'm better at teaching than I am at writing (laughs) and that I was taught by people who were scholars more than they were writers. Mm. And I think that made a huge difference too because they taught me 
how to really read and analyze the work of great essayists. And that's what I try to bring to my students is, um, you know, the ability to look at the work of the masters and figure out how they did that or why they did that, and then simply try to emulate it. And the other thing is that when you're, when you're teaching nonfiction, the personal essay or memoir, you're actually asking people to take their own life experience and go deep inside it, examine it, analyze it, and figure out the deeper hidden meaning, Mm -hmm. which of course, what we know is that there is no deeper hidden meaning in life, day-to-day life. So you have to actually apply meaning Mm -hmm. to what happened to you. And you have to use it to illuminate something about that's universal about living in the world and being a human being. It's really, really hard, but mm-hmm. it's really gratifying. And even if you don't get there, which most of us strive, but we don't get there, the act of doing it is worthwhile. The act of examining your own life, your own role in your life, and finding meaning in it is, it, it matters. Mm-hmm. It matters. So I feel in that way, like my job really does matter. Mm. And you also say um, that half of your efforts are spent trying to convince students that making art is in fact difficult and is uh, supposed to be difficult. Um, and that sort of, and that feels in some sense very much kind of against the grain of how we are often brought up to think of art and artists, in fact, as sort of as art being something rooted in inspiration and uh, or talent, perhaps, and this idea that it is something that has to be worked at and has to be suffered and not suffered in a kind of, let's say, sort of uh, uh, romantic way, but but suffered through the kind of the long hours of toil. Um, yeah, it's quite a, again quite an, a sort of an unusual uh, perspective to see <laughs> to see set down, and perhaps an unpopular one with your students. Yes, well, you know the interesting thing that they wouldn't want to know, but I know after teaching maybe you know a thousand people over the course of my career is that the ones who succeed, who become really good writers that the world recognizes, are not frequently the ones who have the most talent for language, but they're the ones who are ambitious and have a talent for insight and Mm -hmm. effort. So um, that's a little daunting too, actually. That's really daunting. And and connected to the ambition, I guess, is it the ones you feel who put in the work as well? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what I mean by ambition. Mm. The people that you say, well, this... This isn't quite there. You need to think about it longer. Mm. You need to think about it, and maybe you need to live longer. And those are the people who will put it away in a drawer, and when they've lived longer, they'll pull it out of the drawer, and they'll start working on it again. Mm-hmm. I'd like to um, to finish on um, a sentence I found um Fascinating, and I just like to unpack a little bit, um, a little bit more. Uh, at a moment, you write, "I'm I'm." tired of trying to describe things that aren't describable um which in a funny kind of way feels 
to be almost like the, <laughs> a lot of a lot of the point of what you've been doing in uh, in many of these essays. And this is a sentence I I can't remember exactly where it comes from now, but I think it comes from quite near the end of the um, of the collection. Um, after having uh, worked so um, for so many years on your writing, and also you know I haven't necessarily been the uh, the most sort of prolific of writers. There's not sort of tomes and tomes and tomes of your work, which to me testifies to the fact that, you know, each essay is a kind of uh, uh, an effort and is kind of a struggle. Do you still have faith in writing, if you ever did, as a as a way of describing the undescribable? I do. I have faith in writing that it helps you chip away at whatever the shell is and find the soft interior. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a deeply, deeply important part of life, not just of writing. And the essay that you're talking about where I say I'm trying, I'm tired of trying to describe things that aren't describable was really, um, it was a moment when that surprised me in the writing because I thought, oh, I'm very nearly addressing the reader here, which I never do that I'm aware mm. of. But it was a moment where I felt myself pop out of the essay and try to like, like say to the reader, this is really hard what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to write about my dear, dear friend who was dying in front of me of, you know, a terrible illness. And, um, and yeah, it was a naked moment. And it's interesting that it stood out for you. So thank you for that again. Well, thank you. That is all we've got time for. Um, it's been such a pleasure, Joanne. Um, the, the collected works, um, as well as Sherry, are both available here at Shakespeare and Company um, in our bricks and mortar store, also from our website or um, from your local independent store, I'm guessing in the UK. Are these these are just editions in the UK, are they? The collected works yes. in Sherry? Yes. Okay. And uh, and of course, your the the books are available as separate collections in the in the US or wherever else uh, you may be in the world. Um, Joanne, thank you so so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.